welcome to the Dad Strength Podcast, helping you take care of yourself so that you can be present for your people. The Dad Strength Podcast is presented to you by the Unlearning Network. My name is Jeff Gervitz, and I am your host. I am your workout partner. I am the canary in your coal mine. I am here to help you become a hero to the people in your life. And this is a special episode for me because my guest today is one of my heroes. But to tell you about Paul Terrace Volkovinsky, I need to give you a bit of background. I am what people a long time ago would have called a physical culturist. I've run a gym in Toronto since 2008 with a particular vision to what exercise can and should mean. So I'm interested in what is going to improve and lengthen not just your quality of life, but also your health span overall. It's how you're living. It's your ability to engage in things mentally, physically, uh, emotionally, spiritually, the whole schmear. Okay, so for a long time, I've been asking the question of who out there is still doing it well in their 60s and their 70s. I want to know what they're doing and I want to learn from these people. The first time that I saw a video of Paul Teres Volkovinsky, he would have been late 60s. He was moving with a grace and a rhythm and coordination that would be impressive to absolutely anyone. He was swinging maces and Indian clubs as well as uh, jewelry and gata. And these are, these are just thick uh, club-like things. Uh, Indian clubs look themselves sort of like bowling pins or juggling clubs. They're small, they're not particularly heavy. And seeing them these days is kind of rare, but about 150 years ago, it would have been impossible to say that you were fit without being pretty proficient in these things, at least in North America or England. You swing these around your body, over your head, and you can really challenge your own coordination. It is almost like playing a musical instrument in the sense of the kind of patterns and rhythms and changes that you have to create. At first, I thought these things would be good for my shoulders, and it turned out that, yeah, they were. Uh, it also turned out that they were good for my shoulder blades and my wrists, most of all for my brain. There are some real mental gymnastics involved in club swinging, and here's the simplest way I can put it. Joints like circles and brains like patterns, and you get both of these in spades with Indian clubs. And I was kind of fumbling my way around when I discovered Paul on indianclubs.com.au. That's an Australian site. And I learned a ton from just watching him and trying to reverse engineer how he was moving. He blew my mind. He, at, at the very least, he sprained it. I eventually got in contact and we started talking about bringing him to Toronto. Except that life had other plans. It tends to do that. He was diagnosed with prostate cancer and traveling was on hold while he went through chemo. But when he was finally well enough to jump on a flight from Australia and begin teaching workshops again, I couldn't wait to bring him down. They say that you're never supposed to meet your heroes. Not true. This guy is wonderful. He is kind and he is intelligent and he was so generous with his knowledge and expertise. I spent a lot of time with him not just learning a lot, but knowing that I might not have this opportunity again. His prostate cancer isn't in remission. It's not cured. Um, it is being managed medically. So, you know, when we got into this interview, we didn't just go into the history and practice of Indian clubs. We went a lot deeper too. Before we begin, I want to thank our sponsor, Othership. 
is a guided breathwork app. Sessions can wake you up, calm you down, and otherwise get you into the state of mind you need. I can tell you that I have a kind of brain where it is hugely beneficial to me to be able to regulate my emotional state before I work. So I think about my feels before I think about my thinks. And I love what I do. And that means I want to come correct when I do it. So getting into the right headspace has become key for me. I can do that with exercise and I can do that with breath work. Othership is an incredible tool to dial things up, down, or, you know, to the side, anywhere you want to go. You can try the app for free by visiting othership.us. And I highly recommend it, especially if you have trouble getting traction with meditation. This will get you up the mountain in a different way. Now for my interview with Paul Taras Volkovinsky. Let's get into it. Okay, my name is Paul Taras Volkovinsky, and I live in Western Australia, and I swing Indian clubs, Persian meals, and the mace. It's a martial art that's ingrained in, um, particularly the mace and the, the jewelry, is ingrained in Indian culture. And um, I believe it was very much promoted as a response to colonization of, of India by the English. So the English went in there sort of the early 1830s and um, with their armies and they colonized India, they built things like, for instance, the, um, the telegraph wire was put through all the way from the UK right the way through to India. That meant crossing Iran or, you know, old day Persia. And I'll come back to that in a second. So, and, and, and they saw how beneficial this was for the local, I mean, the police were doing it, the wrestlers were doing it, the army was training with clubs, and they had sort of, you know, bodies to die for, basically. Now, during this, um, the, uh, the, the British rule, the Indians were being downtrodden, basically. And um, around about sort of, I believe it was in the sort of mid-40s, 1940s, there was a movement and a political movement in India to, um, for, for the men to become more masculine because the British thought of the Indians as effeminate because of the style of dress, because of the loose robes and all this sort of thing. He was travelling around India saying, you know, come on, Hindus, everybody, you have to you know, get yourself up to speed and get sort of, you know, um, show how good you are and basically show your manly qualities, if you like. So consequently, mace swinging became very, very popular. The jewellery came into the fore because, it, you know, before that, they were kind of dying off. Um, in regards to that now, the it's still dying off to a certain degree because um, the Akharas only exist in the poorer areas of town, even though wrestling's still very popular modern-day gyms are coming into India in their droves. So that's really very um, visible when you, when you go to India. And also, there's the same things happening in Iran. The Zulkhani in Iran, which is very, very different from the Akhara in India, is, um, is a sort of men-only type of organization, where I'll talk about that in a second. So, you know, people were sort of streaming backwards. I mean, all this, um, the, the modern-day Akhara really started to thrive then because this guy, and I'm sorry, but I can't remember his name, he was travelling around India saying, you know, come on, Hindus, everybody, you have to, you know, get yourself up to speed and get sort of, you know, um, show how good you are and basically show your manly qualities, if you like. I just want to put in a quick note here about uh, how... This is kind of like 
holding on to artifacts and we have to keep them alive. And that is the value of a seed library. Um, there are some methods like the method of loci from ancient Greece mnemonic techniques that we still have. But a lot of that is just uh, faded into history because it never occurred to us that we might have to remember this. We might have to jot it down or archive it. And what is happening with that is the same thing that I see happening with human movement. I see that in uh, the difference in mobility and body awareness that people have now compared to when I started in the industry uh, over 15 years ago, mid knots, you know, and um, it is it is hard to believe that it is getting better. I wonder if the metaverse has something cooked up for us. Now everybody's swinging clubs. At the same time, um, something that was called muscular Christianity came into being. And the concept was that you have to be clean in spirit, in mind, and also be fit and healthy. And um, it kind of manifested itself in the way that people will go to church services, regardless of the, the um, domination, whether it was Methodist, Catholic, Protestant, doesn't matter. They all swung clubs. They would go to the, the appropriate church on a Sunday morning. And then after that, you'd have the sort of the social media of the day that everybody would be talking to each other as opposed to being on, on, um, on digital format. And um, then they would go into the church hall or the school that was usually right next door to the, the um, right next door to the, um, the, uh, the the church, and somebody would sit down at the piano and they'd start playing waltzes, which are in a four-four format, and a four-four format is ideal for club swinging. So then somebody would stand on the stage and lead the, 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 the proceedings and the women would do it, the men would do it, the kids would do it. And um, it was very popular, basically from sort of the um, late 1860s through to about 1930. Now, in the meantime, th other things started happening. Obviously, a lot of books got published. And this is where it gets very, very interesting from my point of view, because these are the books that I've read to relearn the um, club swing in now in the 2000s. I mean, you know, basically this is, um, is from, from my point of view, this was sort of like 2007 when I was sort of starting to get into this stuff. So I was re reading the books 100 to 150 years after they've been written. First, the first thing that became um, um, apparent to me was that all the books were in competition with one another. So, you know, you, it's like, you know, different, different um, types of uh, approaches to physical exercise. These days, um, now you've got, you know, 100 years, 150 years ago, there were different concepts of how clubs should be swung. And because so many people knew about it, they didn't cover the basics in the books at all. They went straight into, oh, you know, these, my patterns are great, look at my patterns, as opposed to somebody else's. And you have to decipher all of this, you know, over a period of time. And it's taken me a long time to, to work that out, that, you know, that those books were actually written for a public that knew what they were doing. As opposed to us now, we don't have those skills because we haven't been doing it for such a long time. This gets me thinking about a friend of mine who is a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, along with his wife, and, and both of them run a uh, MMA school. And he told me a few years back how they had completely changed the curriculum and so rather than launching into techniques with new white belts, they now spend a whole bunch of time on movement, just the basic movements that they have to execute. Because what he realized was 
it wasn't a, um, a learning or a knowledge or an intelligence issue. They were asking people to perform techniques that they were not able to get their bodies into the positions required for. So spending some time up front, just getting them used to moving, knowing their bodies would normally and naturally limber up during the first uh, several weeks, and then maybe working on applied mobility, they were able to get into those positions. But you can imagine somebody starting from scratch, a lot of, of the common body, you know, just as an example of Brazilian jiu-jitsu would be inaccessible to them. So it's just an example of how easy it is in spite of what we think to forget things and for what is assumed to be just a standard universal piece of knowledge uh, to fall by the wayside. I have most definitely seen this in, um, in physical training over the last, say, decade and a half. So I think that's one of the things that I find so compelling about Paul Teres Volkovinsky is that he has pulled an old form of physical culture and knowledge off of life support. And he figured out he was able to bridge the gap to the old manuals and make this stuff understandable and useful again. Pretty cool. Let's get back to the interview. Now, the, um, at the time when the, the, English, sorry, the English went into colonized India, the, the, their armies, the white uh, folk, suffered really badly from disease, from cholera, typhoid um, and other tropical diseases. Malaria is another one. And the doctors of the day, you've got to remember, again, we're, we're talking 1830 here, plus minus a few years. The, um, the doctors of the day really only thought that exercise was the only way to keep this at bay, keep the diseases at bay. And I've never actually found out who the person was or who, who maybe, maybe it was an officer, was it a battalion or a doctor who actually came up with the idea of making the, the, the jury smaller into the Indian club as we know today. And they, they do have, in India, there is a smaller club which is called a Mugdar, it's M-U-G-D-A-R. And that's like a, a rolling pin with one handle at one end. I mean, it's, it's basically cylindrical all the way through. And um, they are used for swinging in certain areas two-handed. I've also seen them swung, swung one-handed. Now, I suspect that the, the, the Indian club, as we know it today, came from the Mugda more so than it did from the Jory. This was late um, 1800s, sort of 1890s. But going through, um, Tom Burroughs was born in Australia, um, I think it was around about sort of 18, um, 1870, something like that. So by the time, so 1870, that's right, because he was 43 in um, uh, 1913, when he did his massive endurance club swing, 100 plus hours, it was 107 hours. And there was, I mean, because the, the, um, people could communicate over the Atlantic and in, into South Africa and so on, um, the um, the communication was there. So apparently during um, Tom Burroughs' swing, information came because he was aiming for 100 hours and word came in from the States that somebody was trying to beat him at the same time. So he continued for another seven hours just to make sure that he got the title. You know, and now you've got to ask yourself, why did people like Tom Burroughs and others like Gus Hill was another well-known American who swung clubs very well and he'd put on road shows and everything else with it. Um, 
why didn't those guys take part in those first Olympics? I mean, they were around in those days. I mean, they were swinging. And I think that the endurance thing was already in place to combat modern-day equipment manufacturers who are becoming to the fore now because of people like Eugene Sandow, the bodybuilder, and every guy in the world wanted to look like him, you know, which is for, for good reason. I totally understand why. So Indian clubs was already starting to go into demise at that stage. So as, as early sort of 1913, Tom's, Tom's challenge happened. You know, the Olympics was 1904. There were only six contestants, I believe, in the first Olympics and about the same in the second. And it was basically Americans who did, who did that. There was no sponsorship in those days. And I, I believe it's um, from memory that it was either the winner of the 04 or the 32 Olympics actually had a 600-mile walk home after the Olympics. Can you imagine? It's just like, you know, I mean, if you compare it to these days, you know, like the sports people have, you know, there's sponsorship and everything else. I mean, those the old guys did it for the love of it, nothing else. So that's an amazing. Now, again, historically, politically, you had the political movement in India. You know, let's show the British we can still do this. Now, to come the turn of the century, the suffragette movement was like in full force. Um, Australia and New Zealand were the first countries who actually had that under control and the laws were passed for, to allow women's, women voting. The UK was lagging behind that, so a lot of women came over from Australia to take part in the suffragette movement in England. Now, Emily Pankhurst, who was the, was the leader of the movement, and she had a body of women, 30 of them. In those days, women wore huge um, dresses and they used to hide Indian clubs in the folds of their dresses. And the Indian clubs had a very, very good purpose. It was just one club per woman, it wasn't two. Um, so they were, A, very well versed at swinging clubs in the first place, but also some of them worked it out so that, you know, the, 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 the British police used to back their horses, the mounted police used to back their horses into the crowd of women advancing down the street. So you know, you've got the horses rear coming here. And basically the women worked it out that if they hit inside the horse's knee, the horse would collapse down onto the ground. The next movement was, it was to swing up with a club, knock the policeman's helmet off. Why? Because in those days, each individual policeman had to pay for his own uniform. And in those days, a helmet was three months' salary. So what do you think the policemen did? They ran off after their helmets. So consequently, the, the whole the protest went into disarray. And I just thought that was just an amazing way of using Indian clubs for political purposes. It's a bit like, you know, let's get the Hindu men, you know, more, more manly. It's the, here the women were using it, you know, to, to actually strike out and get the vote, which was eventually passed. It was... Um, the celebration, the 100-year celebration of the vote in England was last year, 2018. That's how long it did. So, you know, from the sort of early uh, 19, uh, 1910 onwards, this battle went on all the way through to 1918 until they got their vote. So that's just a little bit of, you know, a little bit of uh, spice in there because it was really uh, noticeably used twice as a political um, weapon. And um, and then really sort of sadly, what happened after that was with the, the uh, so going back to the Olympics now, why didn't Tom Burroughs, why didn't Gus Hill and others take part in the Olympics? 
and they they rather concentrate on the endurance feats that they were doing was try to try to get the crowds back into that side of things because this is all showmanship at the end of the day and um, the equipment manufacturers were already producing the machines like they will call them sandown machines they're not they're not that's not their true name but i mean it was that sort of the 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 the, the birth of the gym as we know it almost today which is which had pulleys which had systems in there and drawing the crowds away at the same time thing you know organized sports came into being so people were moving away from for instance on sundays you know the the um the service that would maybe you know they'd all go to the church but after that they'd be all running off to to football games or baseball games or basketball games you know cricket in england and you know rugby maybe or something like this so organized sports started to creep in and um, you know, and now we basically know the story. So organized sport was then very quickly followed by instant, you know, fast food outlets in the arenas. So now the public, rather than being, you know, keeping fit on Sundays, swinging clubs, was now basically filling themselves with junk food, watching other people play. And I mean, you know, that's moved on, you know, right, to, and we're still seeing the effects of that till this day. In eighteen seventy tobacco cards were first released. These were cigarette packs uh, containing cards with pictures of famous athletes. In 1928, Coca-Cola first partnered with the Olympics. In 1934, General Mills got the bright idea to slap athletes on the front of their cereal box and tell you that it was the breakfast of champions. So all along the way, brands, things that we would not probably generally consider to be healthy have made their way into the public perception discussion around sports and athletics. And I don't think this is by accident. Along the way, portion sizes have increased. And to me, it's really interesting. You know, you can't look at the history of physical culture in a vacuum. Alongside of it, you have to look at the history of advertising and the history of trends and everything else that was going on in these times. And that's where you begin to build a more three-dimensional picture. And really, you know, the expression is history rhymes. This is where we see the same things happen again and again. You know, I hope that you have found listening to uh, Paul Terrace Volkovinsky as as interesting and enlightening as I have. I really treasure uh, the time I've gotten to spend with him. And um, before we conclude, we have sort of a final chapter in this interview. And this, uh, this gets heavier because we're going to talk about mortality. One thing to know about Paul, other than he is a treasure, is that he's really looking at what mortality means. He was diagnosed with prostate cancer a few years ago, right around the time I first uh, started speaking with him online, and he underwent chemotherapy. But here's the thing. Um, the, the cancer is being managed, but it is not in remission. So it is progressing slowly. So I wanted to take the time to ask Paul about his his thoughts, his perspective uh, on this chapter. He's such an insightful, intelligent person. I know he'd have something to add here. My cancer, unfortunately, was found too late. So the um, the prostate 
the prostate, um, the, cancer, the prostate cancer has gone outside the prostate. Um, usually what they do is they analyze you and um, they look to taking the, removing the prostate. In my case, that couldn't be done because it's already gone into my lymph nodes in my pelvic area. And I've got um, in my lower left lung, I've got a tumor in there also. They're only tiny, like less than half an inch wide, but they're there. And now my treatment from now on is um, basically androgen blockers, which block my own testosterone, which means that, um, and that's what my cancer was feeding on. So, you know, the more testosterone I made, the more the, more the tumors would grow. And um, now I have to have injections three times a year to block that completely, which is, um, it has some very serious side effects and mentally in particular. Um, the, one of the first ones that I noticed was that my breast was sore. You know, I mean, like tender. Um, they seem to sort of get bigger and, 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 and bigger than normal, and and they kind of feel very, very different. So, and in some ways, I mean, I I almost describe that as a feminizing. What's happening, you know, in my body at the moment, um, like um, even fat distribution is noticeably changing. You feel very different, and obviously, and, and to begin with, I mean, mood swings like you wouldn't believe. I mean, I've never had mood swings in my life. And now suddenly, you know, the first, those first injections were like, goodness me, what's going on here? And, but now, you know, and now, what are we now? I mean, this was, um, I started on that stuff in early 2017. We had 19 now, so two years later, or just over two years later, I'm actually learning to live with it now. I'm a lot, I'm a lot, lot better with it, so I can deal with it and still, you know, train with it. And just um, the body's, you know, you know, it's like a, there's a new, uh, there's a new kind of, um, you know, the basic things that you knew that you did before. Everything's kind of new again. So there's a new new, if you like, and you know, with with just day to day living with a disease like this, this one, because it's not going to go away. My oncologist is quite clear about that. That it's here to stay, and that they've now got to just make, find ways of maintaining um, and reducing the cancer growth or the tumor growth. Yeah, has that changed? how you think about mortality, how you think about... Yes, it has. I mean, one of the reasons I know, I, you know, I want my project, uh, my pet project now is to record everything that I know is because um, I know that my days are numbered. It's as simple as that. The mortality issue was huge to start off with. I mean, it was huge for me, my family. Um, you know, I mean, I'd have my um, wife, bless her, sort of, you know, really, really upset so, um, you know, sometimes, I mean, you know, something would happen or I'd be very sick from the chemo or something. And I mean, you know, I would watch her and, and, and know that I can't do anything to get, get her into a better mental state because I was, you know, so sick myself. But, you know, now we've, we've kind of, I mean, we've been married, um, we will be married 40 years in come January. So that's been a huge strength. You know, I mean, the, the fact that we're going through this together and I've got, I've got her support, my son's support. And um, yeah, and I mean, that gives you a lot of strength. I've got to be honest. Last year was also very interesting because we, Lynn and I, uh, that's my wife's name, um, decided to get away from Perth and um, like become husband and wife again, as opposed to patient and carer, because that was becoming quite dominant. And um, we decided to go to Italy, to um, Croatia, Hungary, because it's, you know, I mean, I can talk about it now. When I first got diagnosed, it was like, this is going to happen and I don't like it. Now I talk about it as if it's an everyday occurrence. And I think um, 
when you go to India, there's something that's very, very much part, especially in Varanasi, where I go to, is um, life and death there is all very much part and parcel. I mean, we tend to sort of push, in the Western world, we push death away, we hide it. It's all sort of like, you know, um, hidden in coffins and all this sort of thing. The coffin disappears into the crematorium, that type of thing. In India, it is so open, it's unbelievable. The, um, the tradition, the Hindu tradition, is that the bodies will get burnt on the river Ganges, on the on this banks of the river Ganges, the ashes get thrown into the river. Mm-hmm. And in the old part of Varanasi, there are constant processions of people carrying a body on a stretcher that's covered with a cloth. You can see the outline of the body. You can almost see the person. Mm-hmm. And they're all banging drums and, and they're singing and chanting and they're happy. This is a happy occasion. So, I mean, it's, it's very much in contrast. And that having seen that and then coming to terms with my own diagnosis has made me, I can talk about it now. I mean, I know it's going to happen. It's going to, unfortunately, it's going to happen to all of us. I mean, you know, that's, that's the nitty gritty of it. But in the meantime, I can still swing and just enjoy it. That was the wonderful Paul Teres Volkovinsky. I'm always so grateful to speak with him. He is a hero of mine, someone who in his 70s is moving with strength and uh, with a litheness that is rare to see almost at any age. It really is impressive. I've learned so much from just watching him move. Big thanks for tuning into today's episode. This is also a reminder that taking care of yourself can be as simple as getting your prostate checked. You know what? You probably do. I probably do. So let's get on that. You can follow the Dad Strength Podcast on your favorite platform and via the Unlearning Network. See you soon.